children like to be frightened by ghost stories and uh, ER docs like to be frightened by lawyer stories and it works every time. They don't have much of a sense of humor. And we know that the boyfriend and the mother both had gonorrhea. Would would you take a look at this guy and see what you think? Hello, welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, coming to you via Skype for the April issue being recorded, however, on March 28th because uh, Dr. Henry has apparently conned himself into giving some talks in Scandinavia, of all places. Gregory? Yes, I'm going, to, I'm going to be a, a, a Scandinavian prince here for a short period of time. And uh, since my mother was a half-Dane, half-Swede, she'd be uh, very proud of me for what I'm going to be doing. And uh, I look forward to it. But I, I think it's great that we're actually recording the April issue in March. We may actually, Rick get back on a time schedule and you know i'd call hell quickly and see if it's frozen over because we're almost always under the gun here on these sorts of things but well, now uh, we're okay and listen um are you getting a nobel prize or something like that uh no but i am opening the uh swedish uh society of emergency medicine the swedes have now become like uh sort of the rest of the western world where the emergency people have become their own separate college and board certified entity and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to come and give the opening address. So I'm very happy. Well, you should be uh, uh, proud, uh, Gregory. And while you're over there, I understand that you're taking Margini and you're going to spend a little extra time over there. Yes. Uh, yes, we are. Yeah. You know, I'm, going to, I'm going to do all kinds of sort of nice things. I mean, I'm clearly getting old and senile and that sort of thing because I, I acquiesced to, to staying in, um, in Eastern Europe for a little bit. And we're going to Budapest and Hungary and Vienna. And a few of those things should be nice. Hey, listen, I hear that the meatballs are really pretty good over there. Yeah, that's not my opening joke, Rick. I do, nice. I, I do have a couple of opening jokes in Swedish. The meatballs is not one of them. And I'm not going to do the Swedish chef uh, from the Muppet show either. Yapska, doobska, lumska. Yeah, you know, we're not, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Well, listen, check out the IKEA factory while you're over there, will you please? I, I'll do that. I'll do that. Well, you know, the I, IKEA got in trouble because of using horse meat in their meatballs. Did you hear about that? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that it was them, though. Uh, actually, I have had uh, IKEA Swedish meatballs, and I think actually the horse meat adds a little uh, little uh, zest to it that wasn't there. Yeah, it's got a, you know, it uh, sort of gallops along, and it's, uh, it's, it, it's pretty darn good, I think. So uh, in any event, um, they're, they're in, they were in a little trouble, but uh, they're over it now, and as you might expect, uh, IKEA is going to make the best of this thing. Hey, listen, uh, I wanted to thank Mike Weinstock and Mike Zook for uh, doing last month's uh, issue. Remember, Mike Weinstock is uh, he's the author, head author of Bounce Backs, which must be in its like ninth or tenth uh, version. And, uh, 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 wait a second. I'm one of the authors of Bounce Back, and we're only in our – we're about working on our third version. But, uh, yeah, Mike Weinstock's done a great job with this stuff, and uh, – I think it's I think it's good, and uh, they were they were great. You know, I was talking to Mel Herbert the other day, and he says uh, even on his uh, MRAP, the bounce back segments, similar to what we did, are clearly some of his most popular. Um, the children like to be frightened by ghost stories, and uh, ER docs like to be frightened by lawyer stories, and it works every time. 
Uh, speaking of uh, Mike Zook and uh, and uh, Mike Weinstock, in August of uh, last year, they presented a case of a fireman who basically had what was thought to be a strained shoulder. But you know the case. It turned out to be necrotizing myositis, septic shock, renal failure, ARDS. And um, Greg, uh, uh, pardon me, uh, Chuck Pennick uh, sent us, I think it was a fax or a Pony Express. I have no idea how we got it. But anyway, we're way behind on it. But he wanted to comment on that case and, and, and make the points that how he deals with a case where it just doesn't add up. Two plus two is making five here and how he approaches these cases. Now, um, there are some generic things that he's talking about. Greg, why don't you pick it up? Okay. Uh, by the way, Rick, you realize the Pony Express, as, as although it's a part of American folklore, only lasted about two years. <laughs> it was not an efficient way to carry the mail, uh, which is sort of similar to today. Uh, Chuck is right, as he gave us a list of things which probably ought to be emblazoned on the forehead of every emergency medicine resident. This is good stuff. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that if, if you had to say, hey, you, wake up. Here are the things you got to think about. This is it. Number one, he wants us to be particularly aware of resting tachycardias on people who are about to be sent home. I agree with that. If I've got a 25-year-old man uh, who, who came in at 115 and now his pulse rate's uh, 70, okay, I can deal with that. When it's still 115, I think i got to be asking myself a few other questions. So what's your view of that, Rick? Well, you know, we've talked about vital signs being vital over and over and over. But the fact of the matter is, is they're, they're on the chart. They're hard to dispute. You can't say, well, it wasn't 115. It was uh, 80. It was 115. So you got to basically look at those vitals, particularly when the patient is leaving and say, does this make sense with the diagnosis I think this person has? Yeah, well, we're commenting on vital signs. Uh, if if someone comes in and they're in there for their sore throat and their first set of vitals are normal, I don't think you have to repeat vital signs. But when they come in and there's an abnormal and it's related to the chief complaint, I think you got to answer an abnormal and, and uh, do something. Because the general rule is this. You either answer it then in the department or you can talk about it from the stand. Take your choice. Um, another very good point he makes is Beware the patient who can't walk out. My uh, uh, partner, uh, Neil Little, used to say that all the time. If they can't actually walk out of the department, uh, you got to rethink it. Because, I mean, if it's grandma, how is she going to get around at home? Do you have to get uh, social service support? Do you have to do this and that? And more than that, have you missed the diagnosis? So, uh, Chuck, again, uh, that's a, that's a wise comment. Rick, didn't you have a case about that? Yes, we did. Uh, we had a young man who had a whack on his head. He got some stitches and, uh, the ENT put a dressing on him and he was about to go home and the EMT noticed he couldn't walk that well. So being a good fella, he got him a wheelchair. The problem was he had a spinal cord contusion, which we heard about subsequently, and you know how that went. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's never a good conversation. Well, you know, there's it? these patients who you're doing it as a courtesy. You know, it's a little old lady, you know, you're helping her out kind of thing. That's yeah. one thing. But you really got to be careful about people who ought to be able to ambulate out and for some reason or not. And this case blindsided us because it was all done by the tech you know, and frankly, I don't know whether it would have been different if a nurse had done it or not, but uh, it was not not good. 
Chuck goes on to give us what I consider to be the most uh, straightforward and honest advice I've ever heard, and that is he he's the honest man because he says two or three times, uh, you know, a shift. There's somebody who's just not understanding what's going on, and he's got to re- he's got to do a do over. Hey, listen, uh, yeah. let, let me clarify that this do over that he's talking about is when he's not. He's, he's worried about a case, and he says, actually, it only happens once every two or three shifts that this comes up because it does involve, you know, reinvesting some substantial time in these cases. Take it away, Greg. Well, you can, again, you can invest it now or you can invest the next five years of your life in the case. What he says is sometimes he has to go back in and start from the beginning, redoes the history and physical Make sure that the part that's involved in the patient is properly undressed, looks at the, what the nurses have had to say, what the EMT, if it came in by EMS, what was written down. Because a lot of times, uh, you and I fall into anchor biasing. We, we get a little something, and we're going to make the fact situation fit our conception of what the disease entity ought to be. And I think that it's remarkable that he actually has the honesty not to make it fit, but to go back and look again. Uh, bravo. I think that's a good idea. He also goes over, you know, his, his, uh, his notes. Uh, he takes uh, a, a little more time, rethinks it. Is there anything else could be involved here? Gets the family to appreciate what's going on. And I like his comment when he says, when I do this, I sleep better. You know? Well, he also said that uh, this is the cases where he takes a uh, special time to dictate a note rather than using, uh, you know, they, uh, some kind of EMR kind of thing. Right. And um, he says the families appreciate the extra time and care as do the patients. So they say this doctor is very thorough. And so uh, it, it makes sense to start from the beginning, rethink it when uh, the two plus two is getting to you, uh, getting five to you. Yeah, uh, by the way, Rick, he ends on a final insult when he says, I know that Rick probably did not read this, so you can give him the highlights. Oh, my God. He's, he knows you, Rick. Is he slapping you around? What's this about? Are you I, old I, don't, I don't even know this doctor when he's taking shots at me here. You <laughs> I know, know that. I mean, just because I know we that. had this Indian Health Service uh, time together. You know, I don't know. But in any case, yes, I do read all of this stuff, but I don't blame him because it's been so long. But he didn't know that uh, when uh, when he wrote that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Okay. Hey, listen, we got uh, Dave Esler has got a couple things he wanted to discuss. Uh, He wants to talk about um, medical board complaints and notes that the rules of engagement differ from those when responding to a lawsuit. You better believe it. Oh uh, Greg, God. you've had some experience with these doctors who are, get hauled into the medical board. They don't have much of a sense of humor. Not only do they have much of a sense of humor, but it varies geographically in the United States. I've had to go to defend docs at the medical board in the state of New York. And if the state of New York is the way the country's going, I'm moving somewhere else. It was draconian. The doctor was guilty per- to, till proven otherwise. This isn't Wyoming. And uh, it can be ugly. My advice is this. There are, there are attorneys who all they do is deal with health care law, and they've made a part of their practice dealing with medical boards. Um, if you're having a problem, your group or however you're set up, 
should get you one of these people who can really thoroughly represent you, get the right people in. And I'll tell you, I, I had one gal, they wanted to re, to take her license away for two years uh, for for nothing, for crap. And, uh, and uh, so I went to defend her, and it, it was important that we show up for these things because, quite frankly, they frequently have somebody on there who's not an emergency doc, who doesn't understand – understand the situation, um, you know, and, and we should pay attention to this. Uh, by the way, uh, Dave is a longstanding listener, uh, writes all the time, and uh, Dave, it's good to hear from you, and we appreciate uh, uh, your, your talking to us here. With regard to this medical board stuff, uh, you can see an, often a nasty progression. I've seen the medical board here in California go after you for one minor case with uh, uh, which didn't seem to be of any consequence because I think they feel that they have the duty to protect the citizens against rogue doctors, and um, sometimes uh, their scrutiny is, is really ridiculous. The other thing is they don't follow the rules of evidence. They can do what they want to find what they believe to be the facts. And there's this other trend where if the medical board sanctions you, well, you can expect that the malpractice suit that's going to come thereafter is going to really have uh, a, a nice uh, spin on it because the medical board has already decided you're a bad guy, despite the fact that the rules of evidence that are used in court are not necessarily used in a medical board hearing. So I agree 100 uh, percent, Greg. You need to get one of these uh, lawyers who specializes in the defense of physicians before the medical board. Uh, absolutely. Well, I, I, I've actually seen this, Rick, that people on these boards, the civilian employees of the boards who prepare the materials for the doctors, they have to justify their job in this no, economy. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they think that this is important. And quite frankly, uh, most of what they talk about uh, isn't. Now, none of us are in favor of bad docs uh, hurting people, but sometimes uh, they become absolutely misguided in the way these things go. Why don't you cover his second question, Greg? Oh, this is the this is his his point on risk management considerations for the recently qualified or soon to retire EP. How do you practice when you're inexperienced and you haven't had stuff? You know what? That's why we do residencies and we have supervision. Um. I think the residencies need to be graded not only in how many patients a resident sees from year to year, but in the kind of discussions they can carry on with the attending about where are the problems. Uh, I hope I get to uh, a couple of those real difficult cases I've had this past week because it, it, it is important that they have a way to go. And here I think is the key. There's got to be a safety valve outlet for the young doc, a phone number he calls. I was called this week by two emergency physicians in the department who wanted to know what to do. And I think that we have to have that kind of, that kind of uh, fail-safe system for them to fall back on. I think it takes probably five to seven years for you to feel comfortable in any job you're doing. And I don't think that matters whether it's neurosurgery or, or uh, – uh, constructing buildings or doing anything else, there is a time when you have to learn, you know, how things are done. Well, he's talking about the two poles, the new, smart, inexperienced doctor 
And some people say, well, well, a residency means that you're experienced. That's not true at all. And, you know, one of my concerns about emergency medicine residencies is that they focus on uh, resuscitation, chest tubes, cricothyrotomies, internal jugular uh, lines, and they don't focus on... um, you know, back pain, and 80% of what we see goes home. The residents want to do all of the procedures and do all of the critical cases, but that's not emergency medicine. That's a part of it. 80% of it is my ear hurts, doctor. Uh, I, I feel a little dizzy. I got this thing in my uh, stomach. What do you think about my leg? And they don't really get a lot of that stuff. And, and so I agree fully that these doctors, in many cases, are inadequately experienced. They will save your life. But they're going to miss your uh, uh, more more uh, subtle uh, problem, I think. And on the other side of this, he's wondering about the experienced and wise doctor, but who's slowing down and who was trained in a different era than the current generation. And we've talked about that in the past, the older doctor. And we've also talked about the doctors, the older doctors who are, who are losing it. But I, I think that uh, David is talking about two extremes. And, and my sense of that is both of these extremes, wherever possible, should work double coverage. They need to have, just as you said, somebody called you, but I mean the idea of having somebody in the department who you can turn to and say, what do you think about this case? I think that working alone uh, is uh, difficult for both pol- both ends of the spectrum. Um, and, I, and yet I know that there are tons and tons and tons of doctors who work alone, in emergency departments, as I did for 20, you know, 30 years, we never had double coverage uh, in an emergency department. We had one doctor on at a time, saw 24,000 patients a year, which is can be kind of nasty. And um, that is much tougher than having the ability to ask a colleague, would, would you take a look at this guy and see what you think? Well, one of the phone calls I got this week was from a guy who's uh, sitting in the department. There's two physician assistants and himself. And, and I think that, uh, and I said, well, gee, you know, it's, uh, who else is backing you up? He says, nobody, the other guy's sick. So I wanted to talk to somebody. <laughs> so he talked to me and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I'll tell you, this is a real problem too with, uh, mid-levels because at least the residents now have done three years in emergency medicine. We've started some mid-levels who they just got out of PA school. They had, they had a month uh, experience in the emergency department, and now they're supposed to be making independent judgments. I mean, I think this is uh, I think this is tough. I think this is dangerous. By the way, in the older docs, there is nothing like a little bit of introspection to say, you know, I don't do that anymore, or I'm not doing this and this and this. It's the brave, wise person who steps back and says, it's now time for me to do something. A little different, and um, I think that takes courage. But um, it, it it's better than ending your career. Um, you know, you'd hate to end your career, and for the next five years, having to be giving deposition testimony, it's not the way to go. He also was concerned about uh, whether new technology presents some uh, risk management issues, like um, you know, he says all of the docs are doing ultrasound for everything, video laryngoscopes. Um, my sense is. This stuff should be helping uh, rather than hurting. I mean, if you can get a intubation uh, facilitated because you've got some new tools to do it, then I, I don't see that there's a risk management uh, issue except for the fact that 
um, there are some cases now where it's very clear in the literature that uh, internal jugular uh, sticks ought to be done under ultrasound guidance. And the idea of using landmarks uh, is uh, not nearly as good. I mean, it is still not a deviation from the standard of care. But if you don't want to, you know, puncture an artery or puncture a lung uh, as easily, then those doctors who know how to use ultrasound guidance for these procedures uh, have an advantage. So and not so fast, Uncle Ricky. Uh, there's also a paper out that said that it was no better than the anatomic uh, technique. I think it depends on what era in which you trained. If you're taking very young people who are not anatomically based. I think the ultrasound probably is better. If you take those of us who put in a thousand central lines anatomically, maybe it's not better. Uh, I, I will say this, in a tough, tight situation, most of us go back to what we do best. Um, I still learn, I learned to intubate with the, with the, with the Miller blade, and in a tough situation, that's what I'm going to do first. Is Why? that the uh, Dennis Miller blade? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, I, I'm sure all the kids are now trained on the GlideScope or one of the, one, of the, one of the video scopes of some kind, and they'll be good with it. Uh, but I, I wouldn't want to intimate on this program that if you're not doing one of these things, you're not comporting with the standard care. I didn't even suggest yeah, yeah, that, doctor. I, I, I was hoping that you weren't going to uh, suggest that. Uh, but I will say this, new technologies do come along, and uh, it is part of the profession that we, we change what drugs we give, we change what protocols we use, and uh, the new technology at least has to be considered. John Albanese uh, wrote out, uh, asking, it's a pretty straightforward question, uh, asking you about his insurance. You want to answer that question for him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's concerned that the malpractice certificate at the urgent care center where he works does not have the names of the actual practitioners on it. Uh, John, I hope this doesn't come as a big shock to you, but almost none of the malpractice insurance policies in the United States have a specific doctor's name on them. What they have is they have the employees or the independent subcontractor who's been assigned to that shift, something like that. And then they have something called the also named insureds. And the also named insureds may be the group. It may be this. It may be that. Um, he's asked a more specific question, and that's does one million per incident, three million uh, aggregate, is that adequate? All I can say is insurance people don't think in the terms of adequate. They say, what is the 80% or the 90% safety range? And the 1 million, 3 million would in most situations be considered uh, in the reasonable safety range. Is it perfect? Nope. But there is no perfect in medicine. And uh, have I seen anybody run into bankruptcy in emergency medicine? Uh, successfully, I've only seen one doctor in my entire well, since 1976, doing cases, one doctor who was driven into bankruptcy, and uh, and uh, I haven't seen any PAs driven into bankruptcy. So I think this is probably adequate at this moment in time. Well, Greg, he's also asking. There's 12 of us who work there. Is do we share the one uh, one million three million, uh, and therefore am I getting one twelfth of one million three million? And I think the answer to that is no. No, uh, it, uh, of the three million, you are. 
I mean, the, the three million is the ad, is, is uh, the aggregate. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, is the aggregate for that year for that uh, for that year of the contract, but um, you don't get a third of a million. After all, eleven guys may use nothing, and one guy it may take a million dollars. By the way, it's almost never uh, that 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 that's the only insurance available. Almost always, the owners of the of the project, the hospital, whatever it is also have insurance. But uh, you, you've asked a fair question here, John, and, 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 and you really need somebody with experience in that particular jurisdiction to look and see what the, what the reasonableness of that number is. Uh, we got another one. John Roth uh, basically responded to Kevin Clower's comments. Uh, Kevin was a guest on a recent issue that uh, advanced practice clinician salary, although it's about half of what a physician's salary is, he's wondering whether there are a lot of hidden costs that need to be considered, such as uh, training. That was specifically mentioned, and that, frankly, that's one of my concerns is uh, I'm concerned about lack of training, not in general medicine, but in emergency medicine. So as you know, Gregory, we have tried to address that with a little course called EM Boot Camp. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I wondered how long it would take you to, to slip this in, Rick. Well, there uh, you go. I mean, t- check it out, guys. EMBootcamp.com. EMBootcamp.com. It's a it's specifically for NPs, PAs who do or want to do um, emergency medicine. And then he also asked, what about the efficiency compared to a physician? Uh, if you have a, a person who's getting half as much as a physician but sees half as many patients, uh, is that an issue? Um well, I, I guess theoretically it is, but uh, but there is there are the issues of trying to get more emergency physicians. There are not a lot of them around, and um, groups have become addicted to the use of uh, mid-level practic- uh, practitioners to see patients, either all of them or a subset that they think are minor cases. Well, so let, let me let me throw in a couple of things here. Number one, this year. With the expansion of the residencies in emergency medicine, as of July 1, the first-year class, we have 2,000 people, 2,000 first-years. We are adding more PAs. Uh, You know, you heard it here first. We could actually have a surplus of providers. And I'll tell you right now, if we go to uh, accountable care organizations, sorts of things. They want to go to a bulk purchase of service. Here's X number of dollars. Now, do you want to hire doctors or do you want to hire PAs who are supervised by doctors? And I'll, I'll tell you, I know what the answer to that question is. And they're, they're going to use a lot more PAs in the future. Just, just understand that the current economic climate of how we reimburse is what's driving a lot of the uh, uh, of this problem, and it's going to change. Well, sure, That's there's going to be 30 yeah. million more insured people who now want to use uh, emer- uh, emergency services and primary care. There will be no primary care that's going to be able to uh, absorb 30 million people. There's still going to be 25 million people who are uninsured in the United States. Um, the numbers could continue to go up. The severity of illness probably is going up, but uh, that's also uh, something that can be questioned. But in any case, there is also this idea of getting the right person to do the job. Do you need exactly. a board-certified resident physician 
uh, residency trained physician to take care of a aqua sprain or a simple laceration? And the answer is no, you don't. Well, the other thing, Rick, is it goes up and down the line. I, I'm strongly opposed to anybody who says, oh, we've got a great, we have an all RN department. Oh, God. I just think that that's wrong. I mean, I want patients back, undressed, ready to be seen. Uh, RN uh, skills are needed for critically ill patients who have IV fluids, monitors, those people who are critical. That, they're for the 15% who are going to make it in the door. The other stuff, I don't think, is needs an RN. And I think we need to be honest about this. Yeah, that's the uh, tech up idea, which, which you and I have been banging at the moon for uh, a long time. We want hands. We want uh, inexpensive hands. We want those hands to facilitate the work of the more expensive hands, like every nurse should have a tech. I think that if that was the case, they, they wouldn't, the nurses would not be making phone calls, bringing warm blankets, bringing the, bringing the bedpan, walking them to the bathroom. Nurses, that's not nurse work. But when you have only nurses, that's what they do. Right. It's, it's not efficient. Uh, in the new world, as we're going broke, people are going to relook at this, and they need to relook at this. Hey, but, Greg, uh, you know, go ahead. The next case I think was really uh, fascinating. Uh, Ray Zhao. Yeah. Uh, sent us, and I sent you last night, uh, copies of his um, macro for physical exam and macro for uh, aftercare instructions. And the yeah. thrust of his paper, uh, his, his um, issue here, is that his group is having heated discussions regarding macros in the H&P. Um, what do you think? Well, you know, when you sent me these, Rick, um, I was getting palpitations. Did you see uh, what I said to him? <laughs> yeah, I, said, I, Ray, I said, Ray, you're going to go to jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I said, yeah, how do you look in stripes, Ray? Uh, but but uh, uh, Ray, if you're listening, uh, th this is a problem. And whenever the macros look like your final exam in medicine, we did this, these 10,000 things. How long did it take you? Ten minutes. No, you didn't do all those things. I think I think there needs to be a rebirth of honesty in this country. And again, payment is driving a lot of this stuff, but there's way too much of it. Hey, Rick, I'm sure you read his aftercare instructions thing. First I, I, of all, it's I, I too told long. Him, yeah, I told him that, and I think you saw my note on that. This was a legal document that was at least a half a page long saying that um, he, they did everything possible to make sure that this person uh, had all of their questions answered many times over, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was a cover-your-butt uh, document that I think would be very easily to discredit uh, because the, nobody does what this document says they did. Well, more than that, in the, in the history of physical one, he says, and I saw the patient immediately. Immediately <laughs> is, is put into the macro. Uh, if I was an attorney looking at that, I'd say, doctor, does this come out of the machine? Do you have to, do you have to, with, you know, remove that? So if you don't take any action immediately is there, how do you define immediately doctor? Tell me what that means. Uh, it, you know, I think a lot of that stuff is just junk and defends nobody. Ray, uh, we're being a little harsh on you, but I think, uh, both of us, had significant issues with both the macro for the history and the macro for the aftercare instructions. 
Uh, Greg, tell us about uh, Medicare billing and the EMR. Oh, God, God, do we have to go there? The, what's actually happening in the country is whenever you have Medicare bills, when somebody's looked at what's happening, the, emer- the, the electronic medical record has had one effect. It's, well, two effects. It's slowed down the care and it's increased the cost of what's being sent to the federal government. Why? Because now you've got all these macros, you've got all these things. It seems like everybody is a level four or a level five visit. You know, sprained ankles are a level five visit. I mean, it, it's gotten ridiculous. And there's some pretty good, there's some pretty good articles out there of people who are looking at these questions. And 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 what they found out is that in the last four or five years, there's been significant upcoding in emergency departments. It's not that they did or didn't do it. It just is, if you look at the overall picture, there's about 40% more uh, level fives than there were just a few years ago. You know, uh, this is from a New York Times article that was uh, September 21st, 2012. It's entitled, Medicare Bills Rise as Records Turn Electronic. And this article is must-reading for all of you folks who are making these wonderful macros, uh, and the um, office in Spectre Journal will be knocking at your door pretty soon. Um, this is just, ask, it, 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 it's so intuitive that this would have happened. Um, one hospital by, here. By the way, Rick, where the costs went up were family practice, internal medicine, and emergency medicine. Why? Because if you go to procedure oriented specialists, Intubation is intubation. Chest tube is a chest tube. A hernia is a hernia. The, the, those are pretty straightforward. But it's in family practice, internal medicine, and emergency medicine where there's a huge uh, cognitive component that we've now decided, oh, yeah, we've put a lot of cognition into this. Now, I'm not saying we're not worth our money, but what I'm saying is <laughs> it was convenient that when these things came along, now all of a sudden uh, we're quote unquote asking a lot more stuff, doing a lot more stuff. That's interesting, isn't it, Rick? Well, you know, level five is not determined by the history and physical. It is determined by the uh, diagnosis, the medical uh, care that is rendered to that person. So you can't make a ankle sprain level five, but these people seem to be doing it. Uh, some of these statistics in this article are just amazing. Baptist Hospital in Nashville, there's, uh, they, um, it says here, the share of highest paying claims climbed, eight, highest paying claims, these are all physician claims. These are level five doctor claims. Their level fives rose 82% in 2010, the year after it began using a software system for its ED. Faxton Hospital, level fives went uh, up by 43% in one year. The national average, national average, the level fives, forty-seven percent rise in Medicare payments at the highest level between two thousand and six and two thousand and ten, versus thirty-two percent in those hospitals that did not have EMRs. So everybody's belly aching about EMRs slowing you down. Well, it doesn't matter because you're going to charge twice as much for the few people that you do see. Yeah, this is what's going to happen. Um, you and I lived through the period of time when the office of the Inspector General went back after residency programs for non-supervision. You remember that, Rick? 
So, yeah, well, I also <laughs> remember when they went after physician billing companies, and you and I know the owners of many of those billing companies who got um, accused of a level fiving everybody, and there was some nasty, nasty stuff that happened. Oh, yeah. Let's. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now we're getting close to home, but uh, I, I think that you're absolutely right that what the feds are going to do is increase the patrols, and uh, and this will not last. There's a story out this week that the uh, oh in Obamacare we we only undervalue or, or uh, undercharged it. Uh, we're wrong by about forty percent. The, the people of the United States are going to get unhappier and unhappier about this, and it ain't, it ain't going away, Rick, and, and we need to uh, pay attention to this. So uh, there's sermonette for the day. Hey, listen, tell us about this uh, whistleblower suit, will you? That'll get this uh, more personal. Well, I, I, I think that the whistleblower, the whistleblower question that, that's come up um, is is a is a very difficult one. Uh, this is uh, an emergency doc, uh, Alan um, Gravett, who is who works for Methodist Hospital in Peoria. Used to work. And, well, used to work exactly. <laughs> he filed a whistleblower suit in 2007, contending that these techniques and the electro, uh, used in the electronic medical records. We're driving up Medicare reimbursement levels substantially, and the obvious implication is illegally or immorally. The Justice Department is now weighing in as to whether to join as a, as a, an amendment as an amended suit uh, against this hospital in federal district court in Central Illinois. Uh, what, yeah, what this basically says is a whistleblower uh, can get up to thirty percent. Of, of what they of what they collect you know you remember when this happened in the defense department when boeing uh got hit for overcharging the federal governments for for fighter planes well this is exactly the same way this works this is a federal this is a federal case and he's he stands to make some money and the uh justice department doesn't care they want the, um, the cash back they noted that um the highest level of emergency care, I guess that means level fives, jumped from 50% of the Medicare claims in 2006 to 80% in 2010, making this hospital one of the country's most frequent users of high-paying evaluation codes. Yep. Uh, they, they also talk in this article about all of the payers. Uh, one payer in particular they talk about claimed that 45 out of 100 claims from Texas and Oklahoma these emergency claims were paid in error. And so they're going to go start asking for the uh, money back. And the la only last thing I wanted to mention, actually two, you know Bob Burley? Yep, 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 yep. He's cited in this article as, you know, being an example of where they did a history and physical that he said they didn't do. He went in for a kidney stone in a hospital in Virginia, saw his record and said, hey, you guys didn't do all of this. And he got, you know, a uh, uh, highest level. Uh, service and you you don't want to mess around with him because he's been a consultant in this area for the last thirty years, right? This you know <laughs> sometimes you pick on the wrong dude when he <laughs> walks in. That's exactly what this is. Now you've picked on a guy who this is what he does for a living, and it's his bill he's looking at. Oh my god! They talk yeah. about a uh, one EMR company that claims on its website that their service 
plays the level of service game on your behalf and beats them at their own game using their own rules. Right. This is, this is um, so predictable that this would have happened. And um, I think that the doctors just need to understand that if they are, their um, uh, NPI number is on these bills, uh, you are personally responsible for what you bill the government. You may have an intermediary doing your coding. You may have an intermediary doing your billing, but ultimately you're responsible. Yeah. Hello out there. If you do not know that you have a federal provider number, a PIN number, um, you do. And you signed a statement when you went to work for somebody. If you're an employee of a hospital, you signed a thing that said the hospital can bill for me. If you work for a, if you're an independent contractor, you sign it that somebody is going to bill for you. If you're an employee of a group, you've turned it over, but it doesn't relieve you of the responsibility of checking on and finding out how your number's being used. And uh, I'll tell you, I wouldn't work for a group that didn't have a system of sending out their bills to other groups to bill them, so they've got some proof that they're they're hitting certain kinds of standards. Right. This is uh, this is dangerous territory. You're supposed to have a compliance program, yep. and it's it's. I find it very 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 difficult to understand how you can jump from fifty percent level fives to eighty percent level fives. These patients are no sicker. Uh, both of these, um, a couple of the hospitals that are specifically named in this uh, Times article said. Uh, uh, well, uh, we, it's just, it's just more accurate billing now. That's total BS. You know that. And I know that. And I don't understand how you can jump the level of fives without concomitantly having sicker patients. It just doesn't work. And I think that this is not going to hold up with even the most modest scrutiny. These guys, Rick, I think are in trouble. Rick, I was sent a letter from a guy who said his group's billers sent him this form. And it said, if you'd only check these two boxes, we could have billed a five instead of a four. They didn't say if you'd done those things. <laughs> what yeah. they said is, if you'd only check these two boxes, we could have done X. And so he's being reprimanded for not playing the game. And I, I just think it's it's wrong. This is all going to come down our heads. But Rick, move up, move on to Kevin Miller's comment. Kevin Miller, I think this is a, a one that we. I don't know whether we did this one. I was cleaning out all the old stuff, and this, I'm not sure. But anyway, Kevin um, had a patient, an 18 day old febrile infant. Uh, he needed to do a lumbar puncture. He explained to the uh, mom, you know, what was going to happen, why it needed to be done, et cetera, et cetera. After he did the lumbar puncture, the mother demanded a transfer because he failed to obtain written consent for the LP that she knew was required. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so his issue is, did he? does he deserve a slap on the wrists? And will the general consent cover that? Absolutely. You do not need a consent, a formal written consent for a lumbar puncture. It may be hospital policy that you do that, and some hospitals do and some hospitals don't. But in terms of a, a standard of care, no way. All you need to do is basically explain the risk benefits to the mom that we need to do it. You, they don't have to sign anything. And so uh, there is a variability in this in terms of what the practice is, but there's no variability in, I think, what the, what the, what the standard is and the law is. The maximum, the, well, the maximum of the law is silence gives consent. Uh, if you're a mother 
watching your child and they said, we're going to do a spinal tap and you said nothing about it, you've given consent. And uh, whether it's on a piece of paper or not, in actuality, in fact, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the form or the substance over the form is you've given consent. Hey, Greg, right. why don't you go into the uh, Robert uh, Barron thing? This is something that we've been in. Uh, it fell through the cracks a, a couple months ago and just got revitalized, I think, in the last two days. But I think it's kind of interesting stuff. All right. Uh, Robert Barron, uh, and, and thanks for writing, contacted us about, the, uh, about doing an MRI uh, for cord compression protocols. Uh, and his group in Phoenix has gone to this, and that's because they have a new young associate, uh, um, you know, uh, obviously bright, uh, brilliant, uh, snot-nosed kid yeah. out of the Mass General. Jess Monass. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> she wrote me a nice email. Uh, yeah, well, the, the bottom line here uh, for Dr. Monas is that there's only a few papers on this subject, number one. Number two, they have to do mostly with with tumor compression of the spinal cord this is not does not have to do with traumatic spinal cord as you know rick this year in in uh, the uh, ema courses we're looking at that literature again and uh, frankly in the trauma situation there's really very little of any use for a um, for a uh, an mri in the trauma c spine patient Hold on uh, here now. She's talking, they're talking about things like, yeah, a tumor compressing the cord or a spinal epidural abscess. And Dr. Uh, Barron indicated that they got burned on a uh, spinal epidural ab abscess. And the whole contention here is that you'd, you could not determine the level of the spine that needs to be studied uh, and, and that these papers basically say that if you think it's in the lumbar area, you could be wrong by at least five, six, seven, eight, um, eight levels. And so that yeah, bottom and, and line, I don't, is, I don't disagree with that. That's but the I, whole I, thing here. You have to survey the entire spine. Uh, so, and that's the point of the three articles that are quoted in, uh, the notes that we're going to be giving everybody that you cannot predict, well, it's going to be in the neck. It's going to be in the thoracic or lumbar and their, their protocol is to do a, which is outlined in the notes is to do a 15 minute, scan of the entire spine because you cannot accurately determine where you should be studying it. And this thing takes hardly any time at all. And they are very, uh, it was, it was generated at mass general where this doctor got her training, right. but, but Dr. Barron's group has embraced this thing in a nanosecond. Well, I think, I think that what the point being made is if you believe it's spinal cord that's being compressed, non-traumatic, then that's right, that the MRI is the study of choice. I wouldn't even do a CT. Uh, I, I, if I think somebody's got a, a, an abscess pushing on the spinal cord, the study of choice is an MRI, and, and I don't think anybody's going to argue with that today, Rick. That, that is the study of choice. Well, they're and not arguing with that. They're saying a standard MRI of the entire spine would take an hour and a half to do. Their right. protocol does it in 15 minutes. If they see something that they're suspicious of, they do a more traditional study of that area. So this is a protocol that quickly scans the entire spine for uh, compression, whether it be tumor or a spinal epidural abscess, based on the fact that you cannot clinically 
uh, accurately determine where the level of compression is going to be in these cases, and they have literature that they think supports that position. Let me just acknowledge, guys, we realized that uh, some of this uh, Skype thing deteriorated a little bit. Uh, bear with us as best you can. Uh, uh, we're going to pick it up from uh, our next uh, our next letter here, actually email. Um, uh, Brent Felton. Hey, did you see what Brent had to say here? Yes, right I did. I'm going to read this. There is no other audio CME program that I listen to that consistently improves my practice on every single shift. So thank you both for sharing your expertise each month. God, he's drank, he drank the Kool-Aid, didn't he, Rick? <laughs> what a suck-up. <laughs> yeah, we like this guy. No, you're, you're not getting a discount. That's it. We're not giving you a discount. Well, anyway, let's do his case. It's yeah, a 51 old with known coronary artery disease and stents who visits their ER every two to three days. Most of the ER uh, docs perform the usual ACS workup, including EKGs and two sets of markers, and then discharge the patient for definitive testing. Right, sure. Um, talking to the patient and his cardiologist have ha failed to change this behavior. Brent feels it's not reasonable and it's irresponsible to repeat the ACS workup every time the patient comes in. Brent gives an aspirin, gets an EKG. If it's unchanged from the past, he discharges the patient for follow-up. Brent doesn't want to be the last man standing because everybody knows that this guy is ultimately going to have a bad outcome. Uh, but uh, he thinks his current strategy is reasonable, and he's kind of saying, uh, what do you guys think? Uh, uh, am I uh, being foolish, or uh, what would you suggest? I have some suggestions. Greg, what do you think? Well, in the first place, uh, when somebody has coronary artery disease, it can wax and wane. He may be having frequent uh, uh, problems, but the point is he's already been worked up by cardiology. He's had his stents. He's done X, Y, and Z. A maximal medical program is required, but the fact that he has to come in every day, is he eventually going to die of his coronary artery disease? Yeah, that's the case. When you think about it, what more are you going to do with this guy at this moment in time? And I think... Uh, if it's every two or three days that he's coming in, this is unacceptable. What, what I think is, is happening here is a failure of the medical system, the, the cardiologist and the primary care doc in this case, to get adequately involved in, in this man's care. I mean, he I, needs pain management programs. He doesn't need to be in the emergency department every two to three days. This man has uncontrolled angina. Uh, it's clear that he's not, re uh, it's not infarcting, as, as multiple assessments have shown. I think the chief medical officer of the hospital and the cardiologist need to get together and maybe even with the emergency physician to discuss this, uh, this man's care. It sounds like he needs better care. Uh, I must acknowledge that uh, Brent suggested that this was in a hospital in which he moonlights, which is uh, out in the sticks a bit. And I think that... Uh, Recurrent angina uh, is needs to be addressed, and I think that they needed this doc. This fellow needs to go to a place where they can address this. Maybe he needs a bypass. Maybe he needs another stent. Maybe he needs more aggressive medical therapy. But coming into the ER every two or three days because you have chest pain means that your 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 process has not been adequately controlled. And I agree that Brent should not be doing an ACS workup for a patient who has uncontrolled angina. Yeah, oh, I think that this is definitely a failure. 
um, of recognizing what the ED can and cannot do. There comes a point in time when we've put our two cents worth in on this case. Now, um, you know, is there an exact moment when, when we stop doing these things? No. And we've all had patients like this. The other thing is you're going to have a certain number of cardiac cripples who that no matter what twinge they get are going to be coming in. But I think this is a failure of uh, an aggressive pain management program with regard to this case. Uh, Greg, we got a couple of articles that are um, very recent that uh, I think are pretty uh, provocative. Uh, do you want to cover these or, or do you want to do the two cases that uh, you got called on this week? How much do uh, we have? What do we have time, Rick? I don't I think know. We got about, uh, I think we have about uh, mm, 15 minutes. All right. Well, I want I want to I want to cover these cases because I think they're news flashes and they ought to be dealt with. I got a call from a uh, and and I will not use his name and um, he suggested that, but he's a very young attending and I have been working with him over the years answering his questions, sort of mentoring him, and he gives me a call while he's in the apartment. And he says, reading from his email, um, I'm working in the ED as I write this email, and two attendings have called in sick. This is a big place with residents. As a result, I am the only attending here on a very busy day. The department has not been able to find coverage, and I've been uh, told to sign off on notes and not worry about detailed documenting. Rick, are you getting a sense of my of my problem here. Uh, yeah, that's, yes, I am, sir. Yeah, yes, I, am. I am just worried about the risk management aspects of this kind of setting with mental protection. Uh, now he has some PAs and there are also residents. And what I basically told him, and he and I spoke on the phone and I said, look, not seeing the PAs is kind of your thing um, in the malpractice suit, you're going to have to say they asked and I didn't go, that's kind of stuff. But to sign off on a residence chart is to commit a class one felony if you bill for it. I said, if you don't see a case, put a note. No, uh, you know, no attending a, a visit, no bill. Because if they bill under Part B, and Part B is the professional service, and you didn't give the professional service, there is no clause that says if you're real busy, uh, we, we don't bill. I, I, I just don't know where anyone would think you can get away with not seeing the residents' cases. You can't. You've committed a felony. Well, one of my, one of my issues, Greg, uh, has been uh, we were, I think, a fairly atypical department in that we had a single doctor, and in the last three or four years, uh, we had uh, a PA a good part of the day. It's certainly not 24 hours. But we had, for 20-plus years, a doctor on call. Uh, I think it's kind of irresponsible, maybe that's a little harsh, uh, to have a, a department that is unprepared to deal with uh, large influxes of patients uh, that is unprepared to deal with sickness in, in, in a physician uh, that when in fact it would be easily done, the doctors won't like it, but the idea of having a doctor who's on call 
who can come in uh, if there is the hemophiliac bus accident, the uh, wh whatever it is. I think that, in fact, if I was a CEO, I would put that in your contract that if you're a single, uh, if you're the only doctor in the department, that there must be another physician able to assist you because uh, their fluxes and uh, volumes are so considerable. Now, this is not that kind of department. This sounds like it's a big department with a lot of people, and uh, they're missing two attendings. Uh, you can't These are tell employed me. physicians, Rick. You can't this tell isn't me. This is a you group. I would call the director. I said, director, you got to get your butt in here. Uh, yeah, he's already can't called tell the me. director. Yeah. You can't tell me you can't get a, a person in there. I just will not accept that if it's this size department. Yep. And, and, and what I told him was the only reason the feds would come after you is if you sent a bill for care, which you did not deliver. But I, no, I'm more no, concerned no about bill. I'm concerned uh, no, about no. the quality of the care, not the well, fact. I, you know, the I'm, I'm concerned about that, too. But as an emergency doc, I'm also concerned about this emergency doc, uh, which is, you know, don't put yourself in a position where you're having to lie. Uh, and and, and I, I said, if you haven't seen a case, you note uh, no physician bill uh, to be rendered because it's it's it, that's where the where the shit's going to hit the fan here is if that has to be taken care of. Uh, I agree with you. I think the quality of the care uh, is suffering here. And he just, he was just afraid having listening, listened to this program for a long time. Uh, he was afraid what was going to happen. He's been left out there to, uh, to uh, twist in the wind because they don't have an adequate system for dealing with um, in either influx of patients They'll just let them wait, uh, or a situation where there's some um, doctors can't come in. They for you know they forget they're working. Whatever it is, um, the, the ER director ultimately needs to be on that pager all the time. That's part of his job. If he's not going to do it, then he can give it off to the uh, assistant director. But somebody has to be accessible uh, in these large departments. I think in general, it, we delude ourselves if we think that there's any real surge capacity in this country. Oh, um, that's true. There may, there may be in, in small or mid-sized mid hospitals or rural hospitals or something like that. But if you actually have a 15 or 20% variation in the number of patients coming in, it's a nightmare. And, and we really don't think ahead to, to deal with a lot of these surge capacity questions. I, I think that a lot of our, uh, certainly a lot of our urban hospitals are dealing at a, with their current setups and staffing and, 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 and throughput, and now they got a, uh, an electronic medical record. I, I think that they're pretty maxed out. On, oh, there's on, no question. And what you do in those cases is you just make people wait. And you just have them in your waiting room for three, four, five hours, and after a while, you think that's uh, reasonable. Um, at some of these county hospitals, uh, municipal hospitals, um, they're basically out of control. I, I don't know why anybody would go to a hospital that has a weight like that when under the EMTALA rules, maybe we don't, uh, you know, they can go anywhere they want, uh, and they can go to uh, the hill hospitals in Beverly Hills here, if they want to, uh, where they're not going to be waiting those kinds of uh, hours. Uh, but in any case, you want to tell us about your other case? 
Yeah, second case. And I'll present you the case, Rick, and I want you to tell me the four or five medical legal situations which are happening. Um, a uh, a mid-level is actually at a smaller hospital. That mid-level is seeing a child uh, because uh, they go in. The lab has called that mother back, bring the, ch- the two-year-old girl back in, because uh, she'd been in two days earlier. She had a little uh, vaginal uh, uh, discharge and bleeding. It was cultured, and now there's a positive gonorrhea culture. Mm. Uh, two years old. The little mother, precocious the, child. Precocious. The mother does not have legal custody of the child. That's in the hands of the father. Mother does have a boyfriend, and we know that the boyfriend and the mother both had gonorrhea. Now, mother is in with this child. Now, the, uh, the, um, the mid-level has called the, the uh, Child Protective Services. They refuse to come in until there's a detective assigned to the case. Um, but, the, but she's had to call the father, who is, uh, as you might imagine, I mean, you're a grandfather, Rick. What would yes, you I do? Is. If you called up and found out that your two-year-old granddaughter, and she's got to be about two years old, somebody gave her gonorrhea, would you be a happy guy? Uh, no. Okay. No. So, so what's, now, the, what, what's the issue here now? Well, that's the point. I think we've got four or five issues that have to be taken care of, all of which are, are uh, medically legally important. And, and I'll run down just a couple of them and then jump in. Number one, the documentation on this chart has to be superb because if you don't think there isn't going to be half a dozen attorneys, both prosecutors and defense attorneys looking at this case, you're wrong. I would do an, I would, I would send a second culture at, in a, in a moment. Plus I would do the other workup on the child looking for possible child abuse. Number two, if the mother wants to take that child, I would call the local authorities to make sure now do you want to send this kid home with a a mother who's of questionable quality? Greg, that kid yeah. doesn't leave the department. The police are called, uh, and uh, you you need to make it very clear to them the urgency of this thing. Uh, get them out of the donut shop to get them over the ER. You need some cops around. Absolutely, and I and I told this person, I want the name and the badge number on the chart of all officers involved. Now, she's notified this, this father, who is a, you know, middle-class, hard-working, gun-owning guy. Um, you, better let, you better let the police know what you've done so they can take action, because the last thing you want to be dealing with is a murder. Uh, now, uh, you've got to uh, make arrangements. Are you going to let that kid go home with that mother to the place where this boyfriend is? And I said, if you have to do it, just admit the kid, invent a disease, say that he's got uh, rampant uh, normothermia, and, and uh, you know, it'll take him two days in, in, in med records to figure out that that disease doesn't exist, but put him in the hospital or do something because this is a, this is case is a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree, but I think the bottom line is you have to be aggressive uh, with the 
uh, police. It's not about necessarily this detective. We just want somebody with a badge in the building uh, to deal with this thing. And uh, they can, once that person with the badge is there, they can wait for the detective, detective all they want in the, in the department. But that kid doesn't go home. This well, kid I, is, is, uh, is uh, being abused. It's a de facto diagnosis. Yeah, well, they, they, when the guy got the call, um, I was said, well, uh, this mother's getting anxious and she wants to leave. And I said, over my dead body. Yeah, it doesn't said, happen. You get, you get hospital security. And there's always some 80-year-old guy with a cane who, who will come down and say, I have security. You know, and, and, uh, to, but get whatever you can to make sure that kid doesn't leave. Send him to x-ray. Just don't take any pictures. Do whatever you Get a you said rate. Get a said rate, exactly. Uh, but, but what you can't do is let this sort of thing go on. Um, it was just interesting that I'm sitting here in the office dealing with other things, and, and you know, I get a call from a, a, a listener who said, what am I supposed to do in this situation? And it's a, it's a, uh, it's a mid-level uh, not the physician. Well, you know, it's interesting, Greg, that, um, you have been, I got to tell you, uh, I see lots and lots and lots of emails that, uh, that we're getting in, uh, that go to mostly you obviously. Um, and that you're extraordinarily generous with your time because, uh, I, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but Greg frequently gives out his number and says, call me. You know, sometimes these things are too difficult to deal with in email or email is just really not the the right vehicle. And Greg says, call me. And, uh, and I, I got to tell you, Greg, that I really admire your, your ongoing willingness to do that. Well, I, I think we actually have helped a few people with the program. I mean, uh, uh, and, uh, w there's never been a group of listeners who wanted to participate more with us and have real questions than ours. So uh, I thank all of our uh, listeners who uh, keep, uh, keep renewing their subscription. And uh, <laughs> if you keep asking, uh, we'll keep answering. Uh, Rick, where are we? Are we ready for, um, for wine of the month or anything like that? Yeah, we are. Listen, uh, we had uh, two other interesting uh, news articles and stories that we wanted to cover. Uh, we can do them next month they're not particularly urgent but i think that um they are uh important um so we'll, we'll just hold off on those two i think we've cleaned up all our letters listen if some of you have sent anything in that we have not addressed because i believe that we are caught up just re-email us and uh, we'll, we'll certainly do it next month because uh uh we had gotten behind and i'm not sure that we got them all we wanted to do them all so uh, there's nothing that is uh, we won't we won't cover. So send it back uh, back to us if you haven't heard your uh, concern addressed. So uh, Greg, why don't you uh, do a little wine thing here? All righty, let's uh, we're we're moving up the coast. Uh, we've left California, and there's a there's been a resurgence of the state of Washington wine industry. Uh, it's it's become terrific. Uh, now, they have the usual overpriced stuff like everybody else, but there's – oh, I've got to say this, the disclaimer. I've been hearing from people, Greg, you've become a Costco whore. You've, be, you've become a Costco slut. Are you getting free wine? Do you get a free membership? Do you, none of that stuff. I buy my card like everybody else. I pay the same amount of money. Uh, I, I just, we just calls it like we see it here. So I am not pimping for Costco and this, these two wines do not 
sit at Costco at this moment. There's one, uh, a winery called uh, uh, Fidelitas, which is out of Washington State. You can just Google it. And, uh, but they are making a, uh, a Semillon 2011 uh, from the Columbia Valley, where a lot of good wine comes from. And this is from a vintner, this Fidelitas, which has a great reputation. They've got a, wi- a white, which they're putting out at 18 bucks a bottle. Getting up there. That, well, no, Rick, Rick, this, now, Rick, if that one bothers you, we go right down the road. I mean, literally down the road to somebody called K Vintners. K, just the the just the initial or just the just the letter K uh, dash Charles Smith. Now, if you don't haven't heard about Charles Smith, he is a strange character who has been making wine in that area, and he's got a riesling called Kung Fu Girl. <laughs> and don't be put off by the name; it's Kung Fu Girl 2011. Um, and you're going to like this one, Rick, because it's getting pretty close to, to, to uh, something you can afford. 12 bucks a bottle. And the guy who reviews all this stuff, I mean, and he drinks the best wines in the world, says this is a 90. This is up there with 50 and 60 and $70 <laughs> wines. And he says 18 buck, or 12 bucks a bottle. And he says it's great. So it's Kung Fu Girl. From K Vintners Dash Charles Smith, 2011, State of Washington. Hey, listen, Greg. I think that that is. Um, oh, I got to press this button here and hang up on that whoever's calling. Uh, listen, uh, I think that that's it. I w- wish you a really nice trip into the uh, Scandinavian countries. There, I, I wish I was going uh, with you, actually. But I'm going to stay here. Uh, I just had 30 yards of concrete poured while we were talking. Three trucks unloaded in my uh, my uh, backyard here. Uh, as you might know, we're doing a little redo that should have been done probably 15 years ago. Uh, so I've had a contractor here for the better part of three months. I've gotten to know his family. I think he's going to move in. What what you're saying is every illegal in California is right now working in your backyard. Exactly. I'm watching him right through the window. Um, so that's, uh, that's April. And, um, guys, remember we, we love your questions. If we haven't gotten all uh, to them, send us what you got. We will address it next month. Gregory, have a nice trip. Bye for now. Signing off. Bye-bye.